Welcome to the Situation Report for Monday, November 6th. This is Lieutenant Colonel Murray. It's, uh, wow, what a busy week. So I'm going to be joined in just a second with by Joel Skolson. I posted a video with him and the Canadian Prepper last, uh, on the last sit rep last Wednesday. And I invited him on the show and he gracefully accepted. So he'll be here in just a minute and we'll get so Jill Skolson is a political scientist by training, specializing in philosophy of law and constitutional theory, and is also a designer of high security residence and retreats. He's uh, self-sufficient with highly secure homes. He was raised in Oregon, served as fighter pilot in the United States Marine Corps during the Vietnam era uh, to begin his design firm and specialty high security residences. And uh, his unique viewpoint on the world is, uh, I think, is welcome because he's he's got a, a viewpoint that most people probably don't share. Um, I share a lot of his, a, a lot of his views. Uh, it was interesting to listen to him on, on uh, Canadian Prepper because I'm like, yep, yep, yep. The whole time he was talking, you know what I'm talking about? We get, when well, we get him uh, going here in just a minute, but uh, so help me to welcome uh, Joel to the show. Well, welcome Joel Skolson to the show. I really appreciate you taking the time and it is truly an honor to have you on my friend. I am, um, I was listening to you on Canadian Prepper, and I'm like, gotta have that guy at the show. <laughs> he's he's spot on, and you covered a, a number of topics. What I want to start with tonight um, is your perspective on the situation in Ukraine, where it sits with the conversation now switching to a peace deal. I'm curious to see what your perspective is on that. Well, thanks, Stephen. <clears throat> you know, I um, there were two of us. Um, Christopher Story in, in in the UK and myself in the United States that that revealed and and documented that the uh, the Soviet Union faked their own demise in uh, 1989 and 90. Uh, you know, it was not just prophesied, but you know, the one of the greatest defectors from Russia, <clears throat> Anatoly Golitsyn, said it outright to the CIA, and they covered it up. Because the the deep state, the CIA, or at least the dark side of the CIA and um, and the FBI were at at that time, actually since about uh, 1900, have been building two enemies, Russia and China, bringing them to power, uh, looking the other way while they spied. In fact, inviting them in. When I was in the 90s, chairman of the Conservative National Committee during the Reagan administration, I got a call from a guy from Hughes Aircraft and said, you know. We got Chinese crawling all over this place, looking over our shoulders and watching what we're we're designing. And uh, and I said, well, "What are you going to do about it?" He said, "Well, we're going to. We've been complaining to the uh, to the higher ups." And um, and he said, "Well, did, did they do anything about it?" He said, "Yeah, they shut us down on Saturday, so we weren't working. And they let the Chinese have the run of the place. So clear back in the '90s, you know, they were openly allowing the Chinese to spy." Uh, and, you know, the Commerce Department was allowing a lot of sensitive military technology or at least uh, double technology to go to China. Um, you know, a lot of conservatives don't know that. And so most conservatives, especially libertarian conservatives such as myself, you know, my good friend Ron Paul um, has been so concerned about the neocons and globalists uh, doing wars of intervention, Iraq, Afghanistan, which had nothing to do with 9-11 that, you know, they've come to the conclusion that anybody that the globalists are against must be a good guy. And it's yeah. just 
It's just absolutely wrong. Yeah. You know, Russia and China have been building to attack the West for years. And, uh, you know, going to the Russia-Ukraine situation, before the phony fall of the Soviet Union, the Soviets put the Ukraine and the Don and uh, I mean Crimea and the Donbass into the boundaries of Ukraine. The West didn't do that. The Soviets did. And they did it because they knew that when they faked their own demise, they could use the fact that Russians were being persecuted in Crimea and or not being, you know, justly treated and in the Donbass to justify an invasion. And that's exactly what happened in 2014. So they knew that the, the ethnic um, differences would show up in a number of ways and they just leveraged the, the ethnic rivalries, like kind of like the Serbs and the Croats. Yeah, exactly. And, and in fact, they pulled off the phony coup. You know, the conservatives think because Victoria Nuland, a globalist, was involved in funding the Maidan Orange Revolution in Ukraine in 2014, that it was a Western coup. But it wasn't a Western coup. And I'll explain. It's very important to understand this. The, the president at that time was a communist, Viktor Yanukovych. And uh, the, the Rada, which is the, uh, the Ukrainian parliament, was controlled by the communists and their allies. And so you have this Western financed and encouraged coup, not coup, but protest going on for three months. And they were stuck in the Maidan Square because the Berkut, the riot police in Ukraine, was surrounding them and wouldn't let them out. Oh, they let food through to keep them alive and they would burn, you know, the protesters would burn tires and other things. But there was a, a Thursday meeting where Yanukovych said he was meeting with the three top leaders of the protest movement and that they'd worked out a deal. And when word got to the protest in the Maidan Square, they said, hey, those guys don't represent us. They're not our leaders. And so on Friday uh, or on Thursday night, they rejected the deal that Yanukovych had made with the protest leaders. But Friday morning, the Berkut were nowhere to be seen. They had been stood down. And so the protest just walked through the presidential palace. There were no guards. They walked through the, um, you know, all the public buildings, et cetera. It was a complete stand down. Kind of like January 6th is what it yeah. sounds like. Well, no, I mean, that was actually a trap, you know, which it's like January 6th and there were no police at all in the Capitol. That's what it wow. would be like. And then them saying, this is a Trump coup. What do you mean a Trump coup? Who gave the stand down order to the Capitol police not to show up, you see? Who, gave, yeah. who could have possibly given the stand-down order for the Berkut not to show up? And only Yanukovych could have done that. And then on Saturday, Yanukovych says he's having to flee for his life. Now, the protesters weren't armed. And they had control of parliament. But the communists and their allies ousted him as president. I mean, this was just as phony as a $2 bill. And you asked, why would they fake their own demise? Well, what they did, they had an interim president for a while, and then they elected Pietro Poroshenko. And Poroshenko, like almost all the previous nationalist Ukrainian president, like Timoshenko and others, were actually Russian shills pretending to be nationalists. They got rich, and you know there was a lot of corruption. Because when the when the Soviets faked their own demise, they didn't remove any of the communists from any of the positions in the bureaucracy and in any of the states. In fact, you know, we knew, uh, and I reported on this uh, even before it happened, that Lech Walesa was a Soviet agent uh, who ran Solidarity, and so was uh, uh, 
um, the guy from Czechoslovakia, the Czech Republic. Um, I know exactly who you're talking about. Yeah. I can't remember his but name. Anyway, but anyway, they, they turned out. He, he was... He was outed, I think, in the late 90s, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I went to Eastern Europe in that time, and I was asking the Poles, did you guys know that Lequilenza was a, uh, a Soviet agent? I said, oh, yeah, everybody knows that. <laughs> Only the Americans don't, you know. We don't get the word. But what I'm saying is this was a very planned thing. In fact, you know, the, the Soviets signed the Intermediate uh, uh, Nuclear Forces Treaty, and... Uh, Oh yeah, the and, uh, the the Pershing stuff. The story. Yeah, we got our Pershing. We, we took out our Pershing missiles. Well, after oh. the phony fall, we found out all the SS twenty threes were still in Eastern Europe in those caves. All of them were still there, showing that you know the Soviets had faked everything, you know, including the 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 treaties that they were. But in any case, what I'm saying is that the current Soviets don't realize that Russia's not our friend. Um, you know. I'm as anti-globalist as anybody because they want basically to create, give, they want us to have a third world war. They're trying but, desperately for that. But, but and, you and see, let me ask you a question before you go, yeah. before we go down, because I, I, I want you to finish that thought, but I also want you to, there's an, the question that most people, well, there's two things. Let me, let me put it this way. Most people, and, and I think that the, the Q movement's done a disservice to a lot of people that are, still loyal to the country yeah because it gave them the false hope that there's these white hats in the background and then putin is somehow our ally yeah and that's that's yeah. complete psyop yeah I, what i remember because i dealt with the russians for a start and did start inspections and i can tell you that they look at every line in every treaty and they they look for loopholes in absolutely every sentence in every treaty and it takes months and months and months to come to agreements and then you have to do staunch enforcement otherwise they're they they go down a rabbit hole and start uh, modernizing and, and they did that with start two right we we haven't modernized since start two but they've That's been right. meticulously oh, modernizing oh, yeah. all their icbm absolutely and sub forces for the past 20 years and and where i want to where i really want your opinion on is Putin is mother. He is mother. Russia means something to him. It means uh, a lot more than most Americans truly understand. Can you give us can, can you give the audience some perspective on how Putin views the world from that perspective? Because it's it's more than he's because he's played off as, you know, he's a gangster. He's a crook. He's he's taken millions of dollars out of Russia. He doesn't care about the Russian people. And I think Partially, that's true, but I also know that he's very, very, very uh, passionate about rebuilding the the former Soviet states. I know he's been he's talked about it in the past. It's come up in the past, and just because he's got good PR people giving him advice now, doesn't mean that's ever gone away. Well, that's right, and it really isn't um, a loyalty to Mother Russia in the sense of the White Russians and the non-communist. It is a loyalty to the former. The, the Soviet state and the glory and the power of the military state, you know, that that represented. You see, you have to remember that um, Putin, you know, was a colonel in the KGB. He's masquerading as a Christian. What conservatives don't understand is that the reason the Orthodox Church didn't ever run any protests against Soviet um, tyranny, no matter how bad it got, is that the Soviets had 
installed in the Orthodox Church, a lot of communist uh, hierarchy there within the church. And it was very, very much uh, co-opted. Um, and so when Putin, you know, helps build new churches and for the Orthodox, a lot of conservatives think, oh, he's a good Christian. But he's not. He's faking it. And no, um, he's not a Christian. Yeah, and he's not yeah. Orthodox at all. You know, you don't make Christians colonels in the KGB. In fact, no. <laughs> you see, what happened when Yeltsin the drunk finally had used his up his usefulness and uh, the oligarchs at the time, Boris Berezovsky, who was the chief oligarch. In, in fact, a lot of conservatives don't realize that that um, um, all of the Politburo at the time of detente and Glasnost had been mid-level people in the bureaucracy two years before they were chosen to go to the parliament. And the same thing happened with um, um, Gorbachev. Gorbachev was a mid-level arms negotiator two years before he became premier. Now, that's not the way that things happen in the Soviet Union. Yeah, that one always made me scratch my head. Because... If someone chooses you, it means that there's power behind the throne. Yeah. And that power was Boris Berezovsky and the other oligarchs that came out of the shadows after the phony fall. They had the power to tell the state bank to loan them the money to buy up Gazprom and the oil concessions and all things that made them oligarchs. Nobody else could do that. They were recognized. In fact, I had a contact in the, in the Kremlin who noticed a meeting where Yeltsin was hosting it, and Berezovsky, as chairman of um, the Commonwealth of Independent States, showed up and other people. And Yeltsin stepped aside, let Berezovsky into the room first. And that shows protocol, you know, that he recognized that uh, Berezovsky was the leader. Well, in I've fact, heard that, but I've never heard anybody corroborate that. So that's the first yeah. time somebody's actually corroborated. It, I'd, heard, it, I'd heard that there's a lieutenant. Really? That had happened. Yeah, yeah. I, well, again, when you're doing the. the doing the start inspections, I had people all around me that were the foremost experts on Russian history, Russian politics, the, the Soviet Union. And, you know, I, well, I don't know about you, but I, I started my career under strategic air command. So you can, you can yeah. take from that just how anal retentive everyone around me was and how yeah. programmed they were yeah. to the cold war. And when I left the service, um, the whole missile business had been moved under space because they really didn't have a place for the strategic triad after they took the, the missiles and the, uh, the bombers off alert. And actually I was on alert in 90, uh, 91 when they took the ICBMs, the Miniman twos and the B-52s off alert, I actually got the message. I have it on my wall somewhere. Wow. That's cool. Um, yeah. But the, uh, the interesting side of that is being around so many experts and in the, in the uh, just in the, the domain that is Russia, you hear a lot of different, um, stories but you never are able to cooperate and i had heard that gorbachev had had two or three handlers that were um designated oligarchs i guess is the best word to say because back then they weren't they weren't considered oligarchs until the wall came down and then That's they right. were basically yeah. given businesses and industries and and they they made a, a class of oligarchs that Putin works with now. Maybe you can explain that better than I can. But yeah, you know actually, it, actually, this is a very interesting story because Putin met with the year he ascended to the presidency. Spanish intelligence revealed that he met with Gorbachev in his villa in Spain five times, showing that Gorbachev was the real leader of Russia and he was getting his marching orders from Gorbachev. But it's interesting that later on, 
uh, Gorbat uh, Putin had Gorbachev uh, murdered in London. He had Guzinski uh, exiled to Israel, uh, and he had Khodorkovsky jailed, and all the other oligarchs were ousted. And uh, Putin actually selected and chose new oligarchs to take over these rich uh, um, contractual obligations. And my, word on the street is that the deal was he would get a 4% take of their, uh, of their earnings, uh, their illicit earnings. And that makes Putin probably one of the wealthiest men in the world. Yeah, 4% of a billion dollars is a lot of money. Yeah. Just so, so the Sochi Palace is Putin's, you know, and he's got dozens of other, you know, residences around with a lap of luxury. What do you so, think about the rumors about his health while we're on the topic? Of, well, uh, you know, I, I do think his health is bad. I think the rumors about him having uh, uh, cancer is are, are very real. The, the rumor about his heart attack uh, recently and uh, that uh, and, and the double, I don't know. Now, I have watched the video of the double and there is some credibility there. It doesn't really look like Putin cheekbones are too high and uh you know it's very very similar of course do you think uh, it's a double that's interesting i think there is a double out there that he's I using agree. occasionally but i don't think he's dead uh, i don't think he's dead either but the, the you i have a lot of russian friends that think that it's not the same putin and that putin died years ago and this is this is an actor that's being controlled by the the new oligarchs yeah. i mean I, you know better than i do to be I think it's you. in between, you know, somewhere in between, but I don't think he's healthy. You know, the shaking of the hands and the, the other things that shows a lot of chemotherapy drugs and other things uh, that he's depending on. Um, but in any case, you know, he, with his overthrow of Berezovsky, it, it turned back into the new Stalin format of the old Soviet Union, of the strongman. And uh, you overthrow strongmen or let them die, you don't, and there'll be a power struggle if he dies. Interesting. So I don't know so, where that's going, but uh, well, let me the, let me ask you. you know. let, let me steer you in a different direction because I, I, you just queued up. This is the problem with having doing a, a show like this is you have so much knowledge that I think people need to hear, because the one thing that Americans are missing is the context and history around Putin and how he stayed in power all these years. It's like Xi, right? Xi did a yeah. purge yeah. during the zero COVID. That was that was not. That was not a pandemic. That was him purging all of the opposition that he was concerned about so he could maintain power. Putin's done the same thing over the years. But we're in a situation now where, and you alluded to this in the, in the last show you did, where there's an alliance between China and Russia. And Putin would like nothing more than to, to take the U.S. down. I think people want to know two questions. The first one is, do you think there's a Red Dawn moment? in our future. And then number two, most of the, if, if we talk about Red Dawn, most of the guys I talk to, they're all maneuver guys like me. Well, I've cyber guy started out in maneuver, but most of the maneuver guys I know, they all think the same thing. It's a one trick pony. Logistically, they couldn't pull off that, that long haul to sustain their forces here. But I, I'm curious what your perspective on that is. Cause that's, 
that was literally all over alternative media for almost six months was this China invading the U.S. And you, we talked about this before we started recording that there's we know there's at least 25 to 30,000 just this year. I think it's more like 100,000 that's come across the border um, that are Chinese nationals. And Michael Yon's confirmed that there's Chinese special forces here because he's seen them and interacted with them in the Darien Gap. So we know that's we know that's a fact. But what's your what's your thoughts on the Red Dawn moment? Well, first of all, I think there's a great deal of speculation about Iranian, you know, guards being here and and other trained military people. I have to ask, you know, how would you know that? Um, they're certainly not going to admit it to somebody like Michael Yan, uh, and he's got, you know, he, he's playing a very high uh, prof, high profile role in the anti-immigration type of thing, and. I, I frankly just wonder if he's exaggerating a little bit. Uh, I just don't know how you you tabulate that kind of, uh, of stuff. Um, because if they really are infiltrators, they're not going to show it, obviously. They're not going to have loose lips. Uh, and, it, it, you know, you know about guerrilla warfare. It takes a great deal of infrastructure, hidden infrastructure, to run a guerrilla warfare. You can't just infiltrate a lot of people. Uh and so I'm, I'm a little skeptical um, of that. But here's why. Um, when you look at the big picture of Chinese military um, uh, buildup, which is significant and ongoing right now, and the stagnation of the Russian military because of Ukraine, and that's why, you know, conservatives don't understand that there is, is Justin Bronk of um, Rusi in the UK, very, very wise, uh, smart guy says, you know, this is the best deal the Russia, uh, you know, that the U.S. could have, you know, let somebody else do the fighting, supply them the arms, and you degrade Russia significantly. Now you have Colonel McGregor running around saying that the U.S. is nearly dead as a military and Russia is stronger than ever. And that's just you know, the Russian shill in him, uh, you know, talking. But um, in fact, he and Scott Ritter have become so pro-Russian and so off the wall in terms of their prognostication about the war in Ukraine is really irritating to listen to them. Uh, but well, now it's Israel. So I listened to yeah. Scott Ritter today talk about Israel. And, you know, I, the, I could tell you from my experience on the ground in Iraq that both sides are always guilty of some kind of atrocities. It's, it's the nature of the game. Yeah. And no matter how much ROE, how much protocol you put in place, fratricide still happens and innocent people are killed i mean i i called in airstrikes and i probably killed you know 20 30 innocent iraqis with 2000 pound bombs it's the nature of the beast when you're in yeah. a conflict yeah. and as much as i'd like to say that that uh you know israel's the aggressor i i will say that both sides have done their fair share both sides have flooded the entire system with propaganda to the point where I don't believe anything from either side. And most importantly, if you look at this conflict just from an information warfare perspective, Israel lost the war on day two when that when that hospital was hit. They could have come out with different <laughs> messaging and they totally bungled the messaging on that and it shifted the momentum away from them and, and they'll never get it back. And I listen to McGregor too, and the one thing that I do agree with McGregor is, is that we've shipped a lot of our um, war stock and surplus equipment out of the country to the point where 
there are certain systems that I know we don't have replenishment for, and we don't have the production capability to catch up anytime soon. And we don't have surge capacity. But those are all those are all true facts because I know people in the system that have, have given me um, legitimate facts around the situation. But that said, I think the other thing that that he doesn't talk about that is true that other people in the system are talking about is that the Russians are having a hard time with maneuver warfare. And, oh, that, absolutely. and combined arms. They just can't do combined arms. Yes. God, thank you for that. Thank you. I've been talking about that forever. And, you know, it's I've tried to explain to my audience how hard it is to do um, maneuver warfare and to have, I mean, just doing air deconfliction between yeah. missile engagement yeah. zones, fighter engagement zones and um, air to ground and cast stacks. People have no idea how complex that is. And we not to toot our own horn, but we are literally the only country on the planet that can do that well. We we can't do it as well as we used to. I'll tell you that. But I can tell you that we were experts at it when we went into the Gulf in 91, because we that's we had we had trained for years in maneuver and spent months in the field doing maneuver. And you know how hard it is to do passage of lines at night with yeah either armor companies or infantry companies, just at the company level, that's a very complex maneuver. It's probably one of the most, probably the hardest on the battlefield is to do passage of lines where you, and for those of you who don't know what that is, that's where a, a unit comes up to the front where there's a forward, forward edge of the battle area where you have line units that are facing the enemy and they pass through that line and move forward. And it's incredibly hard at night because we've done it at night for almost 30 years now because of the our night vision capability, our thermal capability in the M1. And it's an incredibly complex complex maneuver at the company level, not at the battalion or brigade level. And if you can't do those basic uh, maneuvers as a, as a maneuver force, you're screwed because you'll never be able to bring reinforcements up without fratricide. And I can't yeah, tell you right. how many times, you know, I've been yeah. killed in training because somebody thought I was a Russian tank and I was just moving through the lines right on my, right on my lane where I was supposed to be right on my time when I was supposed to be there, even after rock walks and, you know, deconfliction, it still happens. Right. So, uh, but I think the thing that is, is salient here is that you, you, you see the same thing that I do. And that is logistically and maneuver are incredibly hard for the Russians. And I, and I would guess the Chinese too. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, the Chinese just don't have any combat experience. You know, it's like they got all these special forces and they've never been out in the battlefield. I mean, they're going to have a wake-up call when it really happens. Uh, but, uh, you know, the Chinese... They're not, they're not a naval force either. They're not a seafaring nation. Well, that's right. Although they're they're trying to be, but I think they've got a long way to go. You know, I've been on aircraft carriers and flying off of them a long time. And it's one of the most complex operations you've ever you've ever seen. It's just incredible. And, uh, you know, they, they've stolen a lot of technologies. Their new um, Fujian um, aircraft carrier has an uh, electromagnetic catapult on it. Now, I don't know how good it is or how well it's operating, but uh, they've stolen that technology. And, uh, you know, they stole everything, Joel. They're, I, I, they're Hawkeye. They've got a clone for the F-4. I mean, the uh, F-35. It's not anywhere near technologically as good as our F-35, but they've cloned everything. Yeah, they, they took it out of our networks because I chased them out of our networks for 10 years. Yeah. 
and they stole a lot from the Russians early on. You know, a lot of their aircraft are Russian copies and things. But, uh, you know, the Russians stopped transferring military technology to them over uh, about 10 years ago because they realized, you know, China's eventually going to come after us. Uh, so they stopped sharing. You know, I was going to get there. So you might as well keep going on that one because that was going to be one of my points I was going to get you to. Too. Well, you know, it's interesting because you see, they are, uh, there's, in my opinion, in the big picture, there are three predator centers in this globe. Predator centers. I mean, people that are just out to rule the world. And, you know, unfortunately, conservatives think that Putin's fighting against the globalists because he wants us to be free. And that's just not true at all. He wants to establish his own new world order. And I'll tell you, a new world order under China or Russia is no picnic. I mean, it's tyrannical. At least the globalists have to play lip service to democracy and lip service. to You know, they write constitutions where at least you have your rights. And there are all these exceptions, like in the EU constitution, except when society needs your rights, etc. But, uh, you know, the Chinese don't have any pretensions about giving you any freedom of all. Nobody wants to to be under occupied China. And that was one of your things about a red dawn, Syria. Let me just say, I don't think the Chinese or the Russians want to occupy America. And no, that's what that's that's that that's a bridge too far. Occupation is yeah, especially with a billion arms in private hands. That's a recipe for a guerrilla war that just won't quit. Well, I and, can tell you what I would do. <laughs> I would make it so expensive for them to own any dirt around me that they just wouldn't do it. That's right. I'm serious. I'm not, I'm not kidding about that, but that's right. you know, the other piece of that, which I'm, and I'm, by the way, I'm glad you touched on that because the hard part about um, having the opinion you do is that you have a whole bunch of people on the other side of the fence and alternative media that are saying they want to occupy the country. Even if they had, let's just say for devil's or devil's advocate sake, even if they had 20 million troops, we had a hundred of 110,000 boots in uniform, and then 130,000 contractors in Iraq, and we could barely hold a city. We could barely hold a city street for longer than 24 hours. Yeah. And you're talking about a significant force projection, one that you have to sustain, two, you have to replenish, and three, and most importantly, you got to control the, the terrain. And you're right. I, I would make it so expensive for them, they wouldn't be able to move fuel, fuel or food or anything because it would get smoked. And I'm not the only one that would do that. So I, I don't I don't see that moment happening. Do you see, because I think what my view is they're going to go after critical infrastructure and disrupt us when they're getting ready to go into Taiwan. And they don't have to do a lot to bring us to our knees. They can do that through a cyber attack on either um, DOD uh, logistics or on, on DFAS. And guess what? You can't pay people. They're not going anywhere. I mean, uh, I'm curious what your thoughts are. Well, um, you know, in, in my theory, first of all, I take a lot of put a lot of stock on General Hao Tian, Deputy Defense Minister retirement speech. And I guess it was 2011 where he talked about needing Lebensraum and he wasn't going to be pussyfooting around like the Nazis were. They were going to be ruthless with Americans and cleanse the land because they need, you know, the Chinese can't grow any more food. It's mostly desert there. They have a tremendous problem growing. They import a lot of food. They need living space. And how Tian talked about that. So he talked about the fact that they want to develop chemi uh, biological weapons that target Caucasians or and not Asians. 
And, and he said he's working with the Israelis uh, and, and, you know, our own globalists. And, and the Israeli has, you know, the Mossad is part of our own deep state. Uh, they do most of the assassinations for the dark side of the, of the government. Agreed. Uh, and they're very, very good at infiltrating other countries. Well, they're working on biological weapons that target, you know, Arabs and not Jews. And the Chinese have piggybacked on that kind of research. They failed so far. But I just published in the World Affairs Brief, my weekly newsletter, um, I published, uh, it came out in even the Daily Mail of the UK found out that they were still working on race-based biological weapons and claiming to make some progress on it. Uh, but I don't think they're going to be able to do that, frankly. And that's why the nuclear option is such a big thing with uh, with China and they're really beefing up their nuclear uh, not only missiles, but, um, you know, their nuclear capacity. And here's what I think they're doing. They don't want to destroy the infrastructure in the United States because they want the living space. They, they don't want to contaminate everything. I think they're going to throw a preemptive nuclear strike on our military forces only. Decapitate the military and then try to blackmail us into submission. Now, relative, going back to the Ukraine war, you know, Putin's been bluffing. The reason Putin can't throw nukes at the West and he has no ability to occupy after nuking the military. Uh, he can't even occupy Ukraine, let alone NATO and, and the West. So he has to wait for China. That's my theory. He has to wait for China to throw a, a simultaneous nuclear strike. And because China has the naval power to be able to threaten to occupy, I don't think they want to, but I think they want to blackmail the West into submission. Now, the globalists aren't stupid. I've talked a lot in my writings. In fact, I'm the only one um, since 1997 to talk about Presidential Decision Directive 60, signed by Bill Clinton, top secret. And the only reason we know about it is Craig Cernillo, who, who helped write it, was part of Arms Control Today and wrote an article uh, how should I say he was uh, debunking the Washington Post and the New York Times saying, oh, don't worry about PDD-60. We can still launch on warning. And he said, no, you can't. PDD-60 absolutely prohibits launch on warning. You have to absorb a nuclear first strike and then retaliate afterwards. And General was, Butch, and General our, Butch, yeah. Yeah, that was our doctrine for, uh, what, 30, 40 years, is that we would absorb the initial strikes, reconstitute, and then respond or respond once we had clear launch authentication that there was inbounds. And we put a tremendous amount of money in the infrastructure to do that. I, I know because we, we, if you were in the missile business, you were in the bomber business or you were in the Trident business, you knew exactly how long it took for a bomber to come over the pole, an ICBM to come over a pole and a sea launched sub or sub launched ICBM to hit the States. And you could, you could literally plan it to minutes based on where you were, how long it was going to take before you got hit. We, everybody in the business knew it. So that I'm glad, I'm not glad that somebody called that out because I think the, the threat of a preemptive strike would have kept the Soviets at bay, but they probably knew that before we did. They probably read the memos as being written, but. But here's the question. And, and, you know, Bruce Blair, who's big in the disarmament lobby, wrote an article about six months ago complaining. He says, you know, we really need to get rid of launch on warning to have a peaceful detente, you know, with the, with the Russians. 
and, and you know, not to mention the Chinese, which they've just started disarmament talks with. Uh, but disarmament talks with the communists is worthless. They lie and cheat all the time. But the point is, I wrote to him and I said, well, Bruce, have you forgot about PDD-60? We already eliminated launch on warning. And it's been so top secret for so long that the disarmament crowd doesn't even know it still exists, but it's never been repealed. No, now, no, our missile forces, our missile forces still practice launch on warning, but they got to get the codes to do that. Yep. And when you have people like in the Biden administration, you know, I just don't think they're going to get the codes. I, I, you and I can make a case that, 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 that we would absorb a first strike, reconstitute and have a limited retaliatory strike very well here's, now let, let me basically. let me tell you what i think is going on here first of all the globalists are not stupid they're not going to absorb a nuclear first strike and and submit to blackmail from china to give up they're going to be able to retaliate and i personally think we've got to have some kind of ace up our sleeve up their sleeve top secret military thing and it may well be space-based interceptors they may have built brilliant pebbles or other things. Uh, but here's why I think that. General Mattis, after he retired, spoke to a private Booz Allen conference. And it was leaked that he said, you'd be surprised how many billions are going into space that aren't on the budget. Now, everything I know that's on the budget, the surveillance systems, the satellite, I mean, all the, the spy stuff is on the budget. Uh, all the international space stations on the budget. If there are billions going into space that aren't on the budget, what could it be? It's Dodie money. That's what it is. Defense what? Department of Defense Intelligence money. It's all, it's all deficit money. It's all funny money. I know. Well, I know. I, yeah, I know it's funny money. I'm calling it out for my audience. I know you know. No, no. My audience, know. My audience know doesn't know what that means. And if we don't call that out then I'll get inundated with comments about how they're money laundering and using child trafficking and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But I'm glad you called it out because you're right. They've, there's been a, um, and this started before Trump came to town. Let's just clear that up. Yeah. There's been money going into space since 2010, probably earlier than that. That's when I know there was space-based systems going in. Um, but we were not putting weaponized systems in space at that time. Now, that's probably changed since Space Force came around because you don't consolidate assets like that. That's right. A that's unified right. command unless you're getting ready to task organize for offensive operations. That's just how well, that goes. Right. Well, so, here, here's my theory, Stephen. This is very important. Let's just say, I mean, whether or not I mean, nobody knows whether PDD-60 is still uh, PDD-60 is still in, in force or not, except that, you know, it's never been publicly reputed and there's never been another complete nuclear revamping of nuclear doctrine since PDD-60. That was the last time they did the major re re revamping of that. And uh, here's what I think they're intending. You see, the globalists want, they need one more world war. You got to ask yourself, why have they built Russia and China as enemies? And they have built them. They gave the globalists in before 19, <clears throat> 1917, gave $20 million to Leon Trotsky on his way back to Russia to finance the Bolshevik Revolution. $20 million in gold. It was confiscated by the Canadians. Yeah, you know, William Carr talks about this book, uh, Pawns in the Game. Yeah. So I'm glad you brought that up. 
And so, you know, they got a call from the White House to the Canadians, give him back that money and let him go. And the British gave an equal amount of gold to the Bolsheviks. We cut off military aid to the white Russians to let the Bolsheviks win the, the war. We cut off military aid to Chiang Kai-shek to let Mao win. And, you know, the Wikipedia says, you know, Chiang Kai-shek couldn't hold his soldiers because they were deserting on him because he was so unpopular. No, no, that wasn't the truth. They didn't have any money for arms and ammunition. No wonder they were going to desert. But the point is that, um, you know, we had a, a globalist government infiltrating the FDR and Truman administration, and they brought China to power. We, uh, we cut off military aid to Batista to bring Castro to power. We cut off military aid to Samosa to bring the Sandinistas to power. So what's that all about? It's that the globalists use the communists. They aren't communists. They feel they're more sophisticated than communists. They aren't part of the communist. And, you know, even the Birch Society thinks that there won't be nuclear war because Rockefeller and, and, uh, and Rothschild were over loaning money to Russia. So they must be in cahoots together. No, no, it's a one-way street. It's the globalists helping build enemies, helping them financially, helping them steal technology, helping communist revolutions so that they can come in and overthrow them and have a milder form of tyranny, which, you know, people wouldn't otherwise, it's the Hegelian dialectic. So my feeling is you allow a first strike to fall to decapitate the U.S. military. The U.S. leaders come out of their bunkers and they have a lot of new bunkers being built. They know this war is coming. Uh, and they say, we didn't know this was happening, but now we have no choice now that our military has been damaged so severely, but to join in a militarized global government. Because that's what the globalists are all about. They want to destroy national sovereignty. They want to get us into a global government a military, with taxing power. And you can't do that with COVID, even though that was a major worldwide conspiracy. You can't what do about, that. With uh, what about, because that's a good point. Um, so two questions out of that, because I, I, you're, again, you're right on where I wanted you to be. <laughs> so I'm glad you're talking about this. First of all, do you think what timing, what does timing look like for you? Because I, I don't see the Russians being ready. I don't see the Chinese being ready for at least three years. And, exactly. and that's conservative. Yeah, I, even the Chinese have said, I mean, in the I just covered this in last week's World Affairs Brief. By the way, and your listeners can get a free copy of my newsletter last week by going to my website, worldaffairsbrief.com and clicking on request a sample. It tells you the modest subscription that I charge for my work, but uh, you can get that free sample. And it talks about the new DOD white paper on China. And normally they are excusing China and, and placating and saying, oh, it's not a problem. They're not a problem. They've downplayed their nuclear weapons for years, 300 nuclear weapons. It's just a, a pipe dream. But um, they, they're up to 500 now and they talk about it could double uh, recently. But um, the... The DOD is suddenly, it's been part of my theory that when you get really close to war, that the the uh, the globalists like Henry Kissinger and Zbigniew Brzezinski, who's dead now, and George Soros and Henry Kissinger, et cetera, they'll start attacking Russia and China rather than placating people about it because they don't want to be said, you know, or accused of being responsible for having you know, downplayed the threat for so many years. And that's what's happened. It happened earlier with Donald Trump and they used the Russian collusion thing to start to attack Russia early. 
uh, and they haven't really gone full out and attacked China yet, but I still think it's coming. Uh, but it, it's interesting in the DOD white paper on China, they repeated the propaganda from China that they're going to be a world-class military by 2049, and that's a lie. China intends fully to be a world-class military by 2027. And uh, that's what Xi Jinping said in another speech, which uh, they did quote in the DOD white paper. They did say, you know, but Xi says that they're going to be very ready at 20. And I think that's the sweet spot. I think the middle of the latter half of this decade is when China's really fully ready to take on the West. And uh, Russia's got to survive conventionally in the war of Ukraine until then. And, and then they're going to join forces. Now, it's very possible you know, it's interesting when you look at these three predator centers, um, uh, the West actually, you know, and Anthony Sutton talked about this, built Hitler and his armament industry, et cetera. And then they financed the Soviet Union in order to defeat Hitler. And it's kind of interesting how they play one against another. I wouldn't surprise me if, uh, if the Globals didn't cut a deal with China and that Russia is defeated in World War III. And then it's a new Cold War with China. But that's pure speculation. Well, let me, that's a that's yeah. a good that's a salient point because it's it's so try calling my thoughts here. There's there's you, you hit a you hit a bunch of points. One uh, one is the I guess the best way to ask it is the globalists are arrogant enough to think that they can outmaneuver the Chinese, outmaneuver the Russians. And when you look at the current situation with the global financial issues, with China's financial issues, and the other logistical issues that China has, because China has, they have a number of issues besides just the, the, the financial piece of it, right? They've got environmental issues. They've got supply issues because they're, they're a net importer. When you look at all of those aspects, the question really becomes, um, do they go into Taiwan this year? That's first question. Second question is, you know, you have you have Chinese troops on the ground here, which I think they're going to do disruptive operations at some point, because at some point they need to go into Taiwan, too, because they need that production. How do you see this developing, I guess, is the best way to ask that? Well, first of all, it's my theory that um, either the attack on Taiwan or a North Korean attack on South Korea will trigger World War III, not Ukraine. As I say, because Ukraine, Russia can't do anything until China's ready and China isn't ready yet. Well, now, do you think I, this peace deal they're talking about with, with Zelensky in the background, you think that's going to go anywhere? Well, you've got to remember, and Zelensky's very aware of this. Now with the Israeli war, he's second fiddle now. And he's, you know, nobody's thinking about, uh, it's all aid to Israel and that's going to impact the ability of the U.S. to provide more weapon systems to Ukraine. And he's, he, and he's worried that the West is going to pressure him to... Um, um, now, I, I, I don't think that Ukraine can win this war against Russia. And I don't think Russia can win the war as long as the U.S. continues to supply high-tech weapons to Ukraine. Um, but if the U.S. gets tired, and that's why Putin's propaganda campaign against the conservatives and the Republicans has been very effective. They're very anti-Ukraine aid. And I am in favor of Ukraine aid because I see Russia as an existential weapon. And anything you can do to weaken it conventionally delays their use of nuclear weapons because then they have to dovetail with the Chinese. Uh, 
Um, so I, I think there is a possibility and, uh, you know, that they're going to force um, uh, Zelensky into a, a deal. And the deal would only involve, you know, giving them um, Crimea and the Donbass. Um, it's not going to involve giving anything further into Ukraine. You know, whether or not they allow Ukraine into NATO really is a moot point. I don't think that's going to affect World War III one way or another. Uh, with Ukraine. But, you know, you have to remember that prior to the fall of the Soviet Union, they put hundreds of thousands of Russians into the Baltic states. They're next after Ukraine. You know, I've had a daughter live in Estonia and the Russians are always complaining about, you know, being persecuted there, just like, you know, the Donbass. So that could be next on Russia's list uh, in trying to reconstitute the Soviet Union. Well, it brings up a but So, you know, it's 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 interesting to hear your perspective because I've uh, I thought for the longest time that eventually the U.S. support would wane or we would run out of weapons. And, you know, we're talking about a thousand mile front. And I figured at some point the Ukrainian army would collapse and the Russians would start to move and they would move quickly and it'd be a land grab. And that just hasn't materialized. And it's part of it's because of the maneuver issue they have. Yeah, and but they yes. just can't, they can't do combined arms and and you know I I don't know it depends on what kind of weapons the U.S. puts in there but they can pretty easily stop most you know like they did on the move on Kiev it wasn't easy it wasn't hard at all to stop the Russian columns of tanks. Well, I I got to be honest with you I thought that this was going to go a different way months ago, and here we here we are we're into going into year three, and it's still a stalemate so. I, I think you're spot on with the way it's going to end. I don't think it's going to be a, a buffer zone like they originally agreed to. I think there's going to be maybe a small buffer zone or demilitarized zone. But for the most part, they'll keep what they have and yeah. the, the Ukrainians will pull back. But really, the next question becomes, so all things being equal, let's assume that they reconstitute. I still think it's going to take the Russians several years to reconstitute. If this, oh, I do too. I, if I this do has too. shown you us, remember any... the corruption is endemic to that. Yes, country. yes. It's just terrible corruption in there. Well, they're seeing it logistically in the battlefield because oh, everybody's taking a cut. So by yeah. the time it gets to the front, the even the medics are short of material, or material just doesn't show up to specific units it's destined for, and they could be out there weeks at a time without replenishment. I mean, you can't, you can't fight a, you can't fight a prolonged conflict like that without sustainment you and i both know how that works in the, when you're yeah. when you're in theater it takes a tremendous amount of logistics to keep soldiers and to keep units sustained in the field even just with beans bullets and gas that right. takes and, a the, and the russian soldiers are complaining all the time about not having enough logistics yeah and that's i think well i so progrosin it, it seems like that was progrosin's issue too was that he wasn't getting the logistics he needed to finish off Bakhmut, and that ultimately was the was the rub. I don't know how much of that's real, but that from appearances, that seemed like there yeah, was. Yeah, I, I think there's some some uh, truth to that. That he really, you know, he was used to being having priority, but when everything got in short supply, he was being shorted too. And I think that's very interesting because, um, you know, we it's easy for us in the in the U.S. to take for granted logistics. I mean, it's very easy because we. We've since World War II, our emphasis has been on um, supply chains and on log trains. 
I mean, I remember being in the field for weeks and literally maneuvering, not just maneuver forces, but all of the log trains and getting sustainment set up and doing assembly areas. I mean, we would set it up, we'd refuel tanks, break it down, move and do it three or four times a day just to get in the groove of setting up yeah. um, ammo right. supply points. And people don't realize how hard that is for, yes, that's for tanks, right? right? Yeah. So yeah. if they're not doing that now, that's going to take them years to catch up. And I, I don't see them with their systemic corruption. I don't see that working out in their favor. And then the other piece of that too is from a global perspective, you said it's, a, it's not a zero sum thing. It's a, it's basically a one-way push for the globalists. How do you see that playing out? Do you see them getting the world war that they want in the-, in the Oh, absolutely. Sort of because why not? They all want it. China wants the war, Russia wants the war, and the globalists want the war for different reasons. But all of them aim at having a hegemonic system of uh, new world order control. Russia wants that. China wants that. And they know they're going to have to duke it out once the West is eliminated. They think the West is, and I don't think the West will be eliminated. I think the West, uh, you know, frankly, here's what I've said in my world affairs brief. And this has to do with the WEF and the AI robotics society and all that stupid stuff that they've been, that Mr. Harari has been projecting. I don't think we'll ever see that. And I think that the moral corruption that we're seeing in the West and the East, and, you know, they may pretend to be, you know, not in favor of transgender idiocy and, and the gay agenda, et cetera, in Russia, but they've got their own, you know, huge corruption, divorce rate, alcoholism is the highest, health problems are terrible in, the, in, the, in Russia. Uh, but I don't think... After this war, especially if, and I haven't talked about this before, but I think the Russian and Chinese military doctrine is to throw an EMP strike before, 15, 20 minutes before a nuclear, a physical nuclear strike on military, not cities. They don't want to destroy the cities. They want to blackmail the West into submission. I think to make that emphasis tremendous, I think they're going to throw an EMP strike. And I think the grid will be down for at least a year because all the long distance transformers are made in China and we don't stockpile any, but two or three. No, no So we're not coming up, you know, without electricity, trying to rebuild an industry to build those transformers is going to be very difficult. It can be done eventually, maybe a year, but so I think um, that there's a real strong chance, Stephen, that the world will go into a real mess of internecine warfare and, and never come out of it. I mean, if you think what happens in the United States without food and water and proper health and no health care, no insurance, I mean, and that you're not even going to get police to come to, to do into duty if the pillagers are coming down the street. And, you oh, know, no, they'll be, they'll be overwhelmed on day one. That, that's you're, right. You're spot on. And I think the other piece of it, too, is that most of the younger generations don't know how to do anything. That's they right. literally, they like when you and I grow up, your my parents canned. My old man was a butcher, so he, you know, he butchered meat. He could, he would, you know, on, do side jobs at butchering cows on the, you know, on the weekends yeah. to make ends meet. And we always had a garden growing up, always. And my mom canned all the time. We had canned food throughout our house. It was just the way it was. And now, same with mine. Yep. Yeah. And now literally no one knows how to can. No one knows how to preserve food. No one knows how to. Most people don't even know how to check a can to see if there's botulism. Yeah. 
I mean, how bad is that? We, yeah, you and alone, I grew up. Let alone grow a garden. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> how, how many times did you hear growing up, make sure there's no bubble in that can. If the, if the, yeah, the yeah. top's bubble, don't right. over, just throw yeah. it away. Yeah. I mean, yeah. literally it was ingrained into my head from the time I was six. And now my nephews are like, well, the date's bad. And they throw food away. I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> Cans last for like five, six years. What is wrong with you? But that's the, that's the, the byproduct of the consumer era that we've been through for the last 30 years. You have yeah. entire generations that know, they know nothing about food preservation. They don't even know how to, most of them don't even know how to fish. Most people don't know how to hunt. So you're right. If they hit us with an EMP and, and I've, I'm sure everybody's read one second after. I mean, you read that book and you're like, wow, that that is a really good synopsis of how this is going to go. Because it's not just the it's not just the basics of food, water and medicine. It's hygiene in the field. Yeah, it's, it's hygiene when you can't use the toilets because eventually the toilets will will come back. You know, if the system's pressurized again, most people don't even know how to deal with that. And then you have disease and famine and all these other things, of potable water that most most of the third world deals with. That's nine to five for them. But for us, it's it's going to be the kiss of death for probably millions of Americans. And then we're dependent on an established, a corrupt establishment medical system and their drugs. And they're not going to be any drugs. And, you know, I've learned five or six profession since I got out of the military. I mean, I know how to fix things. I know how to weld. I know how to do machining. I know how to do farming. I can fix almost anything. You just, you don't have to go to school to do that. You just start watching YouTube videos. You can learn to fix almost anything if you yep. get the right tools, et cetera. University you know, of we, YouTube, baby. We run, a, <laughs> we run a self-sufficient farm. You know, we've got all the machinery now. We've learned all these skills, even though I was raised on a, on a, a gentleman's farm at least we had tractors and orchards and, and and things and you know i got exposed to that early but we had a huge garden family of 10 children and uh, uh we learned a lot and i'll tell you <laughs> kids just don't do it uh, they just don't, you know when they got helicopter parrots kids don't cook they don't do their own wash they don't do their own cleaning they don't clean the bathrooms they don't know how to clean the bathroom it's just incredible what uh, bad parenting has done to our society well, I think part of that too is the, it's the lazy consumer parents, right? Because you, yeah. they've, I mean, think about how many people you know that are sedentary, right? I'm like you. When I, when I got out of the military, I started flying more. I started flying different airplanes. I, you know, I bought airplanes and started flying and doing different kinds of flying, mountain flying, low level flying. I flew, you know, long routes, short routes, and then I went went back to school, and, and now I'm a gunsmith, so I can work on guns. I can Wonderful. I can weld. Yeah. I can blue. I can do all that, right? And yeah. you know, I could before that I could already fish, hunt, do you know, basically be self sufficient for the most part. Um, but I, I'll tell you this: I have I have a team of folks around me that one of them is a emergency preparedness, and he's a threat guy, and he is. He's not only um, an expert when it comes to, to critical situations, but he's an expert in emergency situations. And I've learned so much just from him, just in refresher. Like, here's a case in point. Everybody talks about bug out bags, right? So I've been talking about, you know, being, and, and that was, by the way, let me say this before I forget it. I am 
I was so glad to hear you say uh, people need to be prepared. You need to get out of the cities by, you know, 26 at the latest. When you said that, I was like, thank you. You just made my point that I've been trying to make for two years. You, you can't stay in place forever. You have to displace at some point. That's and right. Yeah. As the cities run out of resources in three days, they're going to start migrating down the freeways. And then you're going to have, you know, gangs of thugs, et cetera, et cetera. You made a very salient point around that. But it's just too, the too late to get out. Too late to get out once if you wait too long. Yeah. And if if the other side of that too is that, and this is a piece that I remind people of just having the muscle memory of all of these things you have to use the equipment you have so you know how to use it most people go right. buy stuff from amazon and all this stuff shows up and they never crack the case and then in an emergency and they're popping boxes open to try and figure out how things yeah. work yeah. Yeah. and you, you know that's one of the things that, that my team's been working on is you have to have muscle memory to use this stuff and most people don't know basic first aid so imagine yeah. you have millions of people that are without power they can't move except for walk or horseback and most people don't know how to ride horses and then you add some kind of a cut or a bruise or some kind of an infection and it, it just snowballs and most people don't realize that so you where i'm going with this is you talk to this and you have a, a number of papers on your website uh which i'll post in the in the uh, the comment section, so you can get to to your stuff. I, can you talk a little bit about where all that came from? Because I I you made a very you made a bunch of points on uh, Canadian Prepper that I wanted to bring have you talk about because I think this is a very good place to do that. Well, thanks, uh, Stephen. You know, I'm one of the pioneers in the preparedness movement. I started clear back in 1970. Wrote uh, the Secure Home. The first edition was called the Survival Home Manual. It's very comprehensive, uh, covers everything in preparedness, including architectural design and construction of high security residences and retreats and how to do a, f a shelter and uh, fallout shelter. And, uh, you know, the most important thing, when you look at this EMP strike and nuclear war coming, uh, you know, obviously you got to get out of the city. That's why I wrote Strategic Relocation, North American Guide to Safe Places. And it's literally the only comprehensive guide for security on all over North America and where the safer places are. But you've got to be out of the main cities. With a thousand people square per square mile on the East Coast, you can imagine them fanning out after they pillaged all the cities, then the suburbs, and then they're going to be really thick, even in the rural areas. Whereas you get out into Utah and Idaho and Wyoming and other places like that, you got 40 people per square mile instead of a thousand people per square mile. But people don't realize that in a Mad Max scenario where people are pillaging, you can't just get out your weapons and start shooting starving people who just don't know any better and haven't practiced and don't know how to take care of themselves. You need to be able to get out of the way. You need to be able to disappear into a concealed basement safe room system that they can't find you. You leave the doors open, they pillage what they want, and they move on. Or if they decide to camp out in your house, you have ways of getting out, you know, and making that uncomfortable for them to get out of there. But you've got to be able to get out of the way. That's the best option you've got in a situation. Even if you go rural, you have a rural retreat, which I highly recommend. You know, it's very possible that you know, the, the hordes may not get to your retreat, et cetera, but, you know, a couple of them, 
a 10 malcontents in a pickup truck might, and you may have to fight them off, but you always want the option of being able to get out of the way, to have a hidey hole, to have, um, you know, and I don't use the B word, the bunker word, I call them a safe room or a shelter, but they need to be, you know, concrete all the way around. So if the house is torched and burns down over you, it still doesn't kill you. You can survive that kind of things. And you can, you know, if you have a retreat, and you don't have that stuff stockpiled in a secure, hidden underground chamber, preferably in a basement. And I often recommend in my books building these kind of sheltered under a garage because nobody expects there to be a basement under a garage. But it's very uh, easy to do with today's technology. And we have, you know, my book, The High Security Shelter, has even architectural and engineer drawings that you, and plans so that you can actually do that uh, in an existing basement people's cheapest option but i can't emphasize enough you want to be able out of the cities when this happens and you want to have a safe room that you can get out of the way and have all of your high value items stockpiled and secured so that when you get there that they're there and available for use that, that brings up a good point so i did go through that um that manual and what you you have a couple of samples on your website. One of them's, I think, Washington State, and I thought it was pretty interesting that you highlight where the military bases are. You highlight where the um, key traffic areas are. Um, if if somebody's starting right now, do you think it's too late for them right now? Do you think they have time to set up some kind of a, you know, I don't want to say bug out plan, but a you know a fallback plan? There there are some things that are too late now, or not too late, but more difficult now one of those is getting good retreat property you know when covid came along and people started to exit tyrannical california and new york and illinois and chicago etc and i do consultations all the time i deal with those people all the time wanting to get out of there a lot of them went to texas which isn't the best state because of that hard pan soil it's except in east texas you can't hardly do a basement there and florida has a water table problem and that's without electricity that's a terrible climate to have to survive in but still um a lot of the best retreat properties got bought up by a lot of californians moving out in the west and property prices skyrocketed in utah and idaho my two highest rated states um, cheaper property still now available in the midwest in missouri and northeast kansas and some other places and uh, um, but in any place, you know, you're going to get fallout in a nuclear war from the military base strikes that are going to hit in the West. So everybody has to prepare uh, for fallout. But uh, you can find safe places still. It's not too late. I My time frame, if it is in the middle of the last half of this decade, you've got, you know, three to five years. And it's going to take you, frankly, and I'm an expert in this, it's going to take you three years. So don't delay. Uh, you know, one of the problems in the prepper movement, especially among conservatives, is they're looking for a savior. This is the problem with Donald Trump. Donald Trump, I think, legitimately wants to make America great again, but he has no preparation to do that. He was not a conservative. He doesn't know about conspiracy. He doesn't know how to tell who's deep state and who isn't, because the only reason I know is because I know the history of conspiracy. I know Mueller and Ray were part of the 9-11 cover-up. Uh, I know that um, Brett Kavanaugh, who Trump put on the Supreme Court, yeah, he's a partial conservative, but he was second in command to Chemstar in the cover-up of the Vince Foster murder. 
That means he's deep state. And that means, and sure enough, he and Roberts, they get the phone call in the night and they are the swing vote that turns against conservatives on the most key issues. And that's because they're deep state and they have dirt on both of those guys. So, man, so many questions out of that. I don't want to go down that rabbit hole this 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 interview because yeah, right. we sure. could you and I could have a whole discussion about Chris Ray and it would probably last us three hours and yeah. we would just scratch the surface. Let me ask you if because I know we're coming up on an hour here and I told you I wouldn't keep you longer than an hour. If if you were starting today, what would you start with for prepping for for somebody that's a noob that has no idea how to do this? How would you how would you advise them to start? Well, first of all, I would make sure everybody has a generator or a solar generator with battery backup so that you've got some form of electricity when they, but you see, don't get a big one. Same with your basic food and water stockpiles. Don't get too much because you're going to have to move it. If you're in the city, like most people listening to this, you're going to have to move these things to a better retreat site someday. So you don't want to get tons of things and equipment that, it's going to cost you a lot of money to So what I'm saying is you first things first, you want to be able to handle electricity out, water storage and food. And then you want to start looking for a, a bug out plan. You want to be able to get out of town. And if your job is in town, I've covered this in strategic relocation at best or at a minimum, you ought to move to the outskirts of the city and commute in so that at least the chances are when the when the stuff hits the fan that you can get out before the crowds. Yeah. And I talk about how you got to watch out for beltways around major cities because they're like a moat. There's very few ways to get across a beltway that isn't an on-ramp which will be clogged. There are at least two or three in every major city an overpass or underpass through the beltways that don't correspond to an on-ramp or an off. You need to find those things by going around Google Maps and looking at every one until you find those exit points and then map out your plans to get there, or better yet, live outside that beltway so that you're not there. But everybody needs to then have some type of rural place. I mean, you can imagine in, a, in an EMP strike and nuclear war where you're going to have famine at least for a year trying to grow a garden in a suburban lot. Those tomatoes are going to be picked clean before they're even ripe. And it's just going to be terrible trying to stop common hungry people from stealing everything. Well, it's so going to happen anyway, right? Because I think you just touched on something that most people don't realize. And that is that we've just imported over the past three years, 15 million people that yeah. will kill somebody for yeah, the slightest yeah. thing because that's their culture. And people, most Americans are not situationally aware. They have no idea of their surroundings. They have no idea of their, um, who's around them, what they, what kind of personalities they are. And my kids found this out the hard way. My, my youngest was at Trader Joe's and somebody was falling, uh, my youngest around the store and it dawned on uh, just as a, my kid was getting ready to leave, it dawned on that, hey, these guys are following me around. I need to figure out what's going on here. So um, all that stuff that I had trained, all that stuff that I drilled into their heads all came to the forefront all at one moment. 
But yeah. most Americans don't have any of that. They don't have any clue. They're buried in their phone. They have no idea what's around them, no idea who's around them. So any suggestions for 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 situational awareness? Because I know this is your domain, so I might as well leverage yeah, it. You know, the, the, you know, it's like in California now. You have these groups of six to ten people come up in BMWs at a big gas station as people come into town from out of town. You know, 30 cars gassing up at these mega stations, whether it's Maverick or other types of stations. And they start, when the guys look at them, they start opening doors and stealing purses and other things. And uh, and the cops now won't, you can call the cops and it would take 45 minutes if they even respond. Most of them say, no, it's a misdemeanor and we're not going to prosecute. We're not going to bother because they won't prosecute anymore. I mean, this is, you really got to be situational aware wherever you go with large crowds to make sure, I mean, kids get kidnapped. You gotta, you don't dare let your kids play, you know, unsupervised in the park anymore. I mean, there are trout traffickers all over the place. Yes, there are. And, yes, there are. You know, I just watched a video by muckraker.com with a camera following around these guys coming out of an airport, picking up illegal aliens that are being shipped out. And they ask them, you know, is this your child? Uh, you know, where are you taking them? Uh, you know, and boy, they get hostile right away, you know, and don't put a camera in my face and I'm not telling you anything, buddy. Yeah. And he, these guys are traffickers. And, you know, if, if Muckrake can go around with a camera and catch these, by, why aren't police doing that? Because they can stop people and make them show ID. It's because of, you know, these blue cities, they're not uh, funding police to do this kind of very critical work now. Well, they're all, it, it's the number one cash and carry business, right? So everybody's on the payroll. And yeah. as much as I would love to say that's not true, I, you know, I've kicked doors on red rooms. I don't know if you know what a red room is, but um, red rooms are, are pervasive throughout Asia, Europe, especially in the, uh, Eastern Europe. They're pervasive everywhere. And it's, a, it's child a, prostitution. No, a red room is where, um, they have a they have a gallery like a, a sex club and there's a you know there's a chair in the middle and they put a, a little kid in there sometimes between the ages of two and and ten usually between two and seven and then people in the gallery and people on the dark web pay tremendous sums of money to dictate what happens to the kid in the chair and Man. that's rape torture or dismemberment and that's really evil yeah. you can't unsee walking into a room full of body parts of little kids. You can't see it. Yeah. And yeah. it affects you to a profound level. And that's happening everywhere now. It used to be just isolated to specific parts of the world, mainly um, Southeast Asia yeah. and yeah. the Eastern Bloc countries. But now it's everywhere because it's a it's such a big business. And I got a buddy that's on the Border Patrol and he was telling me that they're moving between five and 10,000 kids a week from the border to parts unknown and no one knows who's operating the plane no one knows where they're going no one knows what they do with the kids once they get to their destination it's insidious and, See, and that goes to my point Stephen, about when this war comes and there's no electricity for a year or so i don't think society is going to knit back together it's too evil now it's too screwed up there's just not enough good people listening to conscience. You know, conservatives tend to think they're a majority. They're not a majority. No. And, you know, I, but I think contrary to, to your point, I think we we could disagree on this one because I've one thing I saw in Iraq that 
I never thought I would see was when they ran out of fuel, they didn't have electricity and water was an issue. They went tribal and tribes banded together, communities banded together to share resources. They didn't go after. That's not Western society. No, but I think eventually that's what will happen because people will realize that I will tell you, anybody with face tattoos, bullet. Anybody that doesn't speak English, bullet. And but that'll let me be the tell first you, Stephen. Let me tell you, I, I'm in agreement. And I've told people, what hope do I have? It's in, it's in, how should I say, a remnant of good people who tend to go rural, go back to their roots, and there'll be new majorities in very small rural towns. Yes. They'll join together. They'll band together. Farmers will help people with self-sufficiency and stuff, but not in the cities. It's And, you know, as I've told strategic relocation, most conservatives live in the cities because that's where the jobs are. But when the CMP strike comes and war comes, no jobs are going to be there anymore. And so they are bugging out if they can get out. And they will gravitate back to Ruralsville, where their heritage comes from. And I think that's where the only hope in society is. But not for society in general, I don't think will be a majority. We don't have the self-sufficient skills to survive well, nor the moral judgment, I think. In terms I think of, initially, yeah, you're right. We're a, mi- we're a minority and the minority will survive. I'm a God-fearing person. I think the Lord will help people. Who, who listen to the promptings to prepare and there will be some blessings, but I don't think we'll ever regain liberty again uh, as a nation. Uh, we'll lose well, it to a global government. I don't know if, I don't know about that. I, I, th- that I can disagree on because I know spirits here helping us. I mean, I, I look at some of the things that have, that have happened over the last um, 12 to 24 months. And as much as people want to say that, the globalist crowd has an agenda that they're sticking to. They're on talking points, but their plan's been disrupted over and over and over again for a variety of reasons. China's well, the idealists, the, the the world, uh, you know, the forum people, yeah, theirs are going to be disrupted. But oh, you see, e- even those people don't know what the higher-ups know about this war coming. I mean, we have people talking about... 15, 20 years ahead, we're going to build this society. And this, and they don't understand that war is going to stop all that from come crushing down. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I agree with you that we'll never have the, the I, I don't think the United States will exist the way it does now, or even the way it did 10, 20 years ago, ever again. I think that system died um, in 2010 or 20, you know, yeah. I'm going to say 2001. With, January uh, 6 proves that the constitution is dead if you're a dissident. Yeah. And more importantly, at some point, I don't know. And, you know, the hard part is trying to figure out what the catalyst is going to be, because you could tell there's a seething anger across the entire country. It's just seething. And everybody I talk to, and I don't, you probably talk to as many people as I talk to, everybody's ready to fight. And I keep telling people this is You're talking to the choir, Stephen. You're talking to former military and preparedness and concerned people. But oh, I talk to liberals too all the time. Yeah, but they're a minority. They're still a minority. The people that are really concerned about the direction of the country in a positive way are a minority. Most people are fat, dumb, and happy and still listen to the mainstream news every night. <laughs> and, and they have no clue that war is coming. Blissfully unaware. Yeah. yeah. Blissfully unaware. <laughs> I'm laughing because 
you you sound like me i i i uh normally i'm the one that's that's the the, the bitter and the skeptical so it's it's good to, <laughs> it's a good balance tonight so i appreciate that but you're right i think you know this is going to go this is going to go tribal it's going to go community it's going to go neighborhood to neighborhood initially and then people will get organized i mean that's just how it goes and i've seen it happen in two other countries now yeah, but, but i not think at, not in the cities they can't do it in the cities There's just too much opposition too much crime too much evil too much you and i both know the cities are just going to yeah. be killing zones and death centers yeah. for the first six months and then after yeah. that they'll be abandoned and it'll that's be right to the that's exactly game. right that's exactly right and that the rural areas the farther out you are away from civilization the better off you're going to be to get organized to mount a defense and to build a coalition of people that will defend themselves against the roving bands once they start leaving the cities and they will leave the cities that's right in, in very short period you know probably six months they'll start roaming yeah. out of the because they'll be the only ones with fuel they'll be they'll barter and get fuel but i i think where the globalist plan goes astray is they're counting on having the the, the ability to reconstitute forces the ability to establish order and for people to willingly go along with yeah. whatever and, and situation. And it's not, it's not going to happen. No way. Yeah. No way. When they lose control, they lose control. That's right. a, it yeah. goes, then it goes native. And once it goes native, all bets are off. And then it's, it's 10 to 20 years to rebuild. If that probably 30 yeah. Yeah. and whatever comes out of this, it's going to be the sheer force of will of people. You and I won't live through this. I mean, let's just call a spade a spade, right? We, we're not going to live through this. We're going to get people organized. We're going to get communities set up, and then we'll probably get smoked by you know a twelve-year-old with a twenty-two. But you know, it just is. It is the way it is, right? Now but you're I, the, now you're the skeptic. I am the skeptic right now. But I I wholeheartedly agree with you that the cities are like I live on the the. The, the outskirts of Phoenix. And I can tell you that the first sign of trouble, I'm yeah. out of here. Yeah. And, and, and I'm not, you know, I, most people, and this, this is the part kills me about the prepping community, right? I've got 30,000 rounds of ammo and I've got, you know, nine <laughs> months worth of water and two, two years worth of food. Okay. That's not going to fit in a pickup. And <laughs> second right. of all, that's heavy. And third, and most importantly, if you're trying to move somewhere with all of that, you're going to need a big truck and big trucks use a lot of fuel to go very short distances. So you better have a backup plan because you're not moving all that at once. Yeah. And we've been trying to say that for two, two years to people. And it's amazing how people can't hear it still. And uh, it's amazing how many people are blissfully unaware, even though they know something's wrong. But see, you know, that's why they keep looking for a savior. You know, when Trump was elected, preparedness just nosedived because people thought we were saved and it's just not true. I mean, Trump had no clue about draining the swamp and uh, no, he was there, there's no savior for this. Uh, the, the deep state is way too powerful. And yeah. uh, so. Well, it's a anyway. machine now, right? It's, it's an institutional yeah, it's a machine. machine. You got it's got a machine has to, the gears have to strip and the wheels have to come off before any, any kind of a new system can be put in place. And I think we're not that far away from that. Yeah. I think that's going to happen fairly short you know short-lived but, the, but there is it. time to prepare uh it's it's getting short and you know if we interview a couple of years from now i'll tell you i'm going to be saying no you're too late if we have comms in a few years from now and we can yeah. do an interview yeah. you're right <laughs> well let me one last question before you go because i know we're over time and i appreciate you sticking around um how do you see the next 12 months developing because i don't see us getting to a 24 election 
I, I there's well, no, I do. I, I, I do. Um, and I think it'll get stolen. Uh, they've got that down to a science now. Uh, they've had sloppy stealing like they had in 2016. Didn't work. It didn't Hillary thought she was going to win. It was more sophisticated, uh, much more sophisticated in 2020. And unfortunately, Trump's attorneys, he had a deep stater, Rudy Giuliani on his staff, sabotaged his legal thing. But nobody presented the 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 Edison research data, which is where they compile all the election data from all the states and feed it to the news media. And that was hacked into and showed absolutely how many millions of votes were were stolen from Trump. And they never used it. It's really sad. But they'll do it again. Yeah. So I don't think uh, we'll ever win again an election. And boy, I'll tell you, a lot of damage is happening. You look at what's happened in this immigration. I mean, literally, Mayorkas has been raked over the coals dozens of times and he just thumbs his note at him and nothing changes. Well, it's, he's got the goods on him. He's, he's been installed. Yeah. I, I, I'm surprised he hasn't been shot for treason already. Cause that's <laughs> everything he's done is treasonous. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I say today that, you know, just here in Arizona, what Katie Hobbs and, and Adrian Fontes and Chris Mays have done just since they've been in office. And the fact that, cause I, I, I have folks on my team that were a part of the audit. And I was very, very uh, active with Carrie Lake's campaign yeah. and a few others to get them into office. And and I said on on November eighth that the the second American Revolution starts today because they stole this election. Yeah. And the sheriff, the Maricopa County Sheriff, is running roughshod. But you can blame every bit of that on Karen Fan, the president of the Senate, in twenty twenty because she killed the audit. And she signed a unilateral agreement with the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors and gave them a free pass. Yeah. And guaranteed that if that was challenged in court, it would be tied up in court for years. Yeah, I saw that. Boy, that was really bad. Oh, and I saw Karen Fan and I and, and I was invited to uh Sonny Borelli did a um he did a presentation of the just the um mail in ballots and the signature matching and how how fraudulent the signature matching was and i was down there to present it with uh, gateway pundit and karen fan showed up and i said to her you got a lot of stones to show up here i'll give you credit where credit's due to show up here but you should have never signed that agreement and she had nothing to say that's right nothing to say that's she right. took the money right just like ben yeah. toma took the money yeah and yeah. they're all they're all basking in the glory right now but what they don't realize is just like most of these in these uh, immigrants that have come into this country illegally, they're going to get double screwed yeah. because they're, they took the money, they came in. And now when things start running out, they're going to starve oh, to death. They would have been yeah. fine in their own country. Yeah, that's right. Well, it's been good to be with you, Stephen. I do appreciate it, Joel. I appreciate you getting right back to me. We'll have to do this again in, in probably, I'm going to say two weeks, because I think a lot's going to change in the next two weeks and we'll see where things go. But I really appreciate it. It's been truly an honor to have you on. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed it immensely myself.